I mean, it's it's not like a natural headline that you're going to see in the paper, but Sainsbury saved my life. Um, I was in a, I was in a bad place, and it was, and it turned out to be a really good thing for me to go and do. It 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 it, it stabilised things for me, and I'm really glad of it. And I met some good people, and I learned a lot. Hello, and welcome to episode 17 of Paths the podcast about people who have lived unusual lives marked by dramatic change or a sense of living different lives simultaneously. You just heard a little snippet of today's guest, Pete Davis. Pete has had a successful career as an author, writing numerous novels and non-fiction books on topics including the 1918 flu pandemic, women's football, hurricanes and much more. He is most well known for writing what is considered by many people to be the best book ever written about football, all played out the story of Italia 90, for which he had extraordinary access to the England team with Gaza, Gary Lineker et al. After writing his books in all-consuming passionate bursts over the course of two decades, he burned out in 2002 and went to work in a Sainsbury's store in his hometown of Huddersfield. In the last few years, he has returned to writing, self-publishing his most recent novel, Playlist. Given that All Played Out culminates in a famous clash between England and Germany in the semi-final of the World Cup, I was completely delighted to get a chance to chat with Pete in the days leading up to England versus Germany at Euro 2020, or 21, or whatever we're calling it. We spend a good amount of time talking about football, so if you are not as into that as we are, there is, as usual, a guide to the topics discussed in the episode description below. Make use of it as you wish. I found this a really fascinating conversation in which Pete was very open about the struggles he has dealt with as well as the highs he's experienced. So join me to hear his amazing story. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or simply spread the word by recommending it to family and friends. Any of the above would be greatly appreciated. Okay, over to Pete. Enjoy. Pete, how's it going? Thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Daniel. It's a pleasure. Um, And uh, I'm good here. Thank you very much. It feels like a, a complete privilege to be talking to you full stop as the author of what is considered by many people to be the greatest book ever written about football and a number of other books which I want to ask you all about on a a myriad of fascinating subjects but it's an extra special privilege to be talking to you at this moment in time because just last night it was confirmed that England will be playing Germany in a knockout game on Tuesday in the Euros and your seminal book, of course, culminated in uh, just such a tie in Italia 90. So uh, to begin with, I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on that tie. And when you found out it was going to be England, Germany, how did you feel? Well, we've been here before, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> Euro 96 as well. Um, I think I want basically to say that well, obviously, as a supporter of English football and one who's written very passionately about it, when I wrote about Italian 90, of course, I would like England to win. And actually, of course, I believe that England can win. But 
Maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, this... I want to. I would. I would want to say I've got the greatest respect for the way that Gareth Southgate's comported himself uh, recently and and over the longer term. Um, he did a very good job in Russia, and I think uh, the kind of fever of expectation and angst that hangs over the business of following England in England um, does tend to obscure the realities rapidly and co comprehensively. You know, the reality is very much as was the case in Italia 90, we haven't played great stuff in the group stage, but we're top of the group yeah. and nobody's scored a goal against us and Germany look absolutely intriguing you know after the, they tore portugal to pieces i thought oh well they're going to win again mm. and then they looked uh in a lot of trouble last night so you can't yeah. tell you know you can never tell you can go every time you go into it believing that it's possible that we'll win and then afterwards germany win <laughs> and fun. i have the greatest admiration for them you know i, I don't have any resentment over it um well, I know you, that there is that hideous Brexity jingoism in England that just absolutely disgusts me that we'll be doing the whole German thing again and the constant reference to World War II. It's so tiring and odious. Mm. The Germans yeah. consistently and repeatedly produce fantastic football teams who are to be admired and, and, you know, why can we not simply just look at it, admire it, learn from it wherever possible and enjoy the game. Absolutely. And that actually leads me to a follow-up question, which I'm really, I'd really love to hear your thoughts on, which is about the, the recent history, particularly of the England national team, because as a, I'm a Man United fan, um, uh, like a lot of people from Dublin and you know I follow the Premier League very closely and we're very aware that the England team nearly always has a brilliant squad of individuals sometimes kind of astonishingly so where they have incredible talent in terms of individuals but particularly since around the year 2000 or so it seems that they can never um you know, but the sum of the parts can never be greater than the than the individuals. So, I was I'm, when reading uh, all played out, it strikes me that you were embedded with the team, but also with the press, and it struck me. I I've wondered if it's the press hype that makes it difficult for the England players to kind of perform at their best, and I I've often wondered. I thought why why would that affect them so much? But when I was reading all played out, I was I was thinking this is actually giving me anxiety, the kind of the atmosphere that's built around these tournaments for the England team. So I'm curious it, to hear it, your thoughts. It, it, can be, it can be really toxic and it's a crying shame. It's, I think, important to have perspective and recognise that other countries, you know, by, by the score, all have a, a media that, crawls all over them and nitpicks and criticizes every last little thing 
but there's a distinction with England that's to do with the wider culture of the place, which has become, I'm really sorry to say, very unhealthy in recent years. But the tendencies were always there. And that is this horrible sense of entitlement that we ought to just turn up and win. Mm. Combined with a weird, never acknowledged inferiority complex around the fact that, you know, there's this huge mystery that actually, with one exception, we don't win. You know, so there must be something wrong, but we're English, so we can't say there's something wrong with us. So it's somebody's fault. And then it's this becomes this sort of schizophrenic pursuit of, on the one hand, wanting somebody, there's always a figure that's got to be picked because that figure is you know, godlike in their, in their natural gifts and talents. And people accuse the England squad and the England management of never trusting, you know, artistic merit, as it were. So, you know, there was a huge pressure for Gascoigne to be taken to Italy in 1990. And Robson didn't actually make that decision until very late in the, in the day, in the spring of that, of that year. And then this time round, it's all on Jack Grealish, who does look like a very, very appealing and attractive football player, but he's not Paul Gascoigne, let's face it. I mean, nobody is Paul Gascoigne. Uh, but so there's that one thing that, you know, you've got to have talent and you've, you've got to have faith. You've got to entertain us. You've got to score six. And then on the other hand, if you make the slightest concession towards that playing with flair messing with the system looking at other countries picking up some sort of you know like more artistic operatic intelligent approach to football then you get then you immediately get traduced for not being english so you can't win mm. but it connects back to that horrible sense of entitlement you know this this constant repeat idea that you know we should win because we're english and i don't think at, at large the the great majority of, of the english public feel that way because they, they know full well what the likely outcome of a tournament is when we turn up at it um we may play very very well indeed and sometimes we do will we win it on the evidence so far over a great long period of time, we probably won't. And, you know, we're accustomed to um, disappointment. And I, I'm per per personally, being 62 now, and having gone through it on a number of occasions, quite content and resigned. And I'll, I'll, I'll get what I'm given. And that's the way it is. So I think the public are more sensible than, than the, the media, than the press. You know, it's different now than it was 30 years ago because 30 years ago, we didn't have all the internet and social media and so forth. And the power of the sun and the mirror and the tabloid circulation war was really intense and horribly burdensome. Uh, it happened that in Italian 90, the, the squad kind of circled the wagons and went into uh, an absolute, you know, we're not talking to them, 
you know, like huddle together mindset, you know, the, the, the feeling of everybody against us was turned to good purpose by the England squad in Italian 90. And that's a trick that people could learn from and, and maybe sort of try and find that again. Um, the Italians did the same thing in Spain in 82 because their media were being really toxic at that time. And it did them a lot of good as well. Uh, it's more complex though now because, you know, the media is more fragmented. It's more various. Um, the, the, the variety of writing about football includes a lot of very good writing that didn't exist really in a simpler world with far fewer outlets and far fewer platforms. In 1990, there was a kind of, you know, an accepted language in which football was reported and, and you didn't stray from it. And there were very few people who managed to find a, a place above to, to express their, their gifts. I, you know, I'm thinking there were, of course, some very good writers around like Hugh McIlvanny and Paddy Barkley, who's been a great writer on football for many years. But the majority of the, of the reporting was to a code. Whereas now the way in which football is written about has expanded and become more interesting. So, it, you know, the players don't have a, a simple of a target to, to, vent, to defend themselves against. It's more complex. But then the, the whole nature of the game has changed so enormously. And you could identify with a player in 1990 in a way that I think is simply impossible today. I mean, certainly it would be literally inconceivable that I would be allowed anywhere near an England camp to do what I did in 1990 today. You know, every individual player has got a phalanx of agents and image consultants and rights merchants and God knows who all else, you know, hovering around them, writing their tweets for them, doing whatever they do. And it's very hard for the player, any player to step out of that ludicrous bubble, which is part of the gigantic, gigantic corporate manifest that football has become. Well, um, you've, you've reminded me of a moment which is startling towards the beginning of All Played Out, where you predict a Super League of all the <laughs> big boys in Europe. And you use that phrase, a Super League, which, yeah. you know, um, again talk about kind of timing in terms of speaking to you now um I, I, it's one of the big questions i i have i could ask now or ask later i might i may as well ask now you know a lot of the book is kind of looking forward and people talk about it having changed it's you know italian 90 being a kind of dividing line between old football and modern more kind of corporate football and in some ways that was positive and negative because obviously hooliganism and so on it's a huge part of the book and that seems to have died down to a great extent. But to ask you, what, what, how do you feel football has changed and in what ways for better and what ways for worse? I think the, the very simple and most important thing to say is that football is now safe. People forget how utterly dismal, how absolutely abjectly wretched the state of English football was in the 1980s. Uh, Heysel, the Bradford Fire, Hillsborough, that it should be possible 
and almost tacitly accepted the knowledge as a football fan that it was possible to go to, to, to leave your house to go to a football game and not come back. That's appalling and it's insane. Mm. And a massive, massive change that's taken place in English football spurred in part by Italia 90, primarily by money, but st- certainly in part by the success of Italia 90. The huge change is that really simple thing that it's now safe. And whatever other criticism I have, and I have plenty, vigorously felled, that thing has to be acknowledged and, and, and rem- it has to be remembered how mightily improved the experience of going to football in England has become, which is one reason for the success of English football and the, and the Premier League specifically, as I, had, I hate to have to say this, an international business. You know, it's got, it's, it's clean, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Um, but in other ways that it's changed, Italia 90 was absolutely the last of the old World Cups and the first of the new World Cups. And you could see all the money creeping in and taking firm hold in a way that you thought they're never going to let go. And this thing is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And we knew already at the time that obviously the next step was to take the World Cup to the United States in 94, because, you know, there was this great big market as yet unconquered. And they continue to work on that with increasing success. And, And the general idea is that football should literally take over the world. I mean, at this point, I would recommend with the the greatest, warmest enthusiasm, a book called The Age of Football by David Goldblatt, which is immensely well-written and powerfully well-researched and hugely informative about the global presence of the game now, about how it's intertwined, not just as a sporting phenomenon, but how it's intertwined with culture and politics and economics and how it's everywhere and how it's monstrously corrupt. Mm. And I, I can't recommend that book enough. And you could see that coming, you know, from the, from all over Italian IT, which was a crying shame because it was such a wonderful tournament. I know that people say that football was, the football was poor and that there were the high the lowest, um, goals per game average and all the rest. And when people say that, they're missing out a rather important point, in my opinion, which is, hang on a minute, it was intensely dramatic. And there were so many good stories. And it took place in Italy, which, you know, is is the ideal, perfect, you know, God-given nation to be hosting a World Cup. And it was wonderful on many, many levels. And you just thought, where's it going to go? You know, you looked at all the stuff that was coming into it. You know, I mean, and you can laugh at some of it. You know, the, the way that all the marketing and PR hostesses in in their legions were, were dressed in colour-coded outfits so that the Coca-Cola people were red and the beer people were green and somebody else was blue. And the Grana Padano cheese ladies <laughs> were in these astonishing eye-melting yellow outfits 
Um, you said they, they, they kept getting taller and taller, right? And they did. They did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, by the end, you know, the Amazon women promoting cheese and you just think, you know, I've come to watch some football. I love, I'm surrounded I, by people flogging me cheese. At the end, when you when you went home for the final and you said your only regret was not seeing how tall the, the cheese was. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but um, I, I could go on about it a long time. I mean, you know, what has it become? It's become something that you can't identify with in the way that you could when I was young. But I'd add the caveat that I really don't want to sound like a grumpy old man. You know, I'm still watching football and loving it. Um, it's just different. Uh, it's... <clears throat> it's it's strange i mean it, it, to me it's it completely obscene that somebody should be earning a quarter of a million pound plus per week to play football it's ridiculous absolutely grotesque and that's just you know that's just the the ice at the top of the problem you know underneath it god you know the, the, the corruption is just monstrous and you know the Super League thing. Yeah, you could, I, I talked about it in 1990. They, in 1990, they were talking about breaking the game into four quarters because they were agonising about finding ways of making it appeal more successfully to the Americans. You know, like the, the whole tradition of your sport. Mm. Well, over a century of this, centuries, if you really look in, into into the history of it, just written off by these creeps in suits you know and now we're at the point where uefa are threatening to take the euro final away from wembley if if the Boris Johnson's government doesn't waive the quarantine rights for the best part of two and a half thousand of their people hang on a minute two and a half thousand hmm. you know I mean, waiving the quarantine rights is grotesque and it wouldn't surprise me in the least. It would be absolutely par for the course for Boris Johnson to, to cave and give them what they want and never mind the people's health. But who are these people? Yeah. You know, two and a half thousand. That's not even the beginning of how many of them there are. Corporate sharks and brigands and, you know, hangers on and liggers and gangsters and money launderers and god knows who all lurking around the fringes of the game yeah and we're supposed to just go oh let them in and it's not just football you know the international olympic committee they're in the same game you know fifa the ioc these people are are, are nations unto themselves who wherever they host their respective you know festivals every four years they come in and they rewrite the local tax codes to suit them mm. you know and, and, you know, it's, it's a game. But for these people, it's just a massive moneymaker. And that upsets me. And the seeds of that were there in Italian 90. You know, morally, you can go back further. Hosting the tournament in Argentina in 1986 at a time when you have a hideous dictatorial government murdering 30,000 people yeah, let's, let's give them the World Cup. So, you know, the morality of it, it's, <laughs> it's not just about it's, money, yeah. and it goes way back. But I think we need to be sort of clear-eyed about it, and it's that's a really difficult thing for fans because 
you know, you want to support your, your team and you want to support and you want to enjoy the game. And if you're following such and such a club, for example, and your club's in financial dire straits and you're sitting there going, you know, oh, look, it's awful. Such and such a person from the Middle East has come into the club down the road with billions and that should never be allowed to happen. Oh, but if somebody else from the Middle East with billions from my club, oh, that's all right then. It's desperate, isn't it? So people are conflicted and the power of the game draws us all along. Indeed. And it's hard to stop and look at it and think, you know, what what has this become? But then, it, you know, it's the bread and circuses, isn't it? You know, that applies to a whole load of stuff. Absolutely. And people are dragged along instead of looking at the actual state of things. Well, since we're on the topic, and I, I do, uh, you know, shortly want to get on to, to your story outside of football and outside of All Played Out, but since we're on the topic you've made me think of the the upcoming world cup because i i love football and especially international tournaments i don't know what well it's just there's a particular excitement around them so i would usually be really excited for a world cup but there's something about this qatar world cup what you said about the argentinian one there reminded me of it a it seems to have uh you know it's very dodgy circumstances and how it was chosen um and b we're hearing all these reports of you know the laborers being kind of forced to be there and, and lots of laborers dying and so on um I, you know I, I don't know the details on this particular point but is it not the case that the norwegians have been threatened with expulsion from two world cups if they complain about the human rights issues in qatar I didn't see that. I saw that they had, uh, you know, done a, a protest with uh, human rights written on their on their tops, but I didn't see that reaction to it. Um, mm, I, I I can't swear to the facts on that one. I I I don't know for sure, but yeah. But anybody but, that that goes to FIFA saying that the tournament shouldn't be held in Qatar whether it be for footballing reasons or more importantly whether it be for moral reasons around the hideous human rights record that exists there in general, but particularly around the construction workforce, many of whom have died. Um, if you go to FIFA and complain about it, you will get very short shrift indeed. Yeah. Because it's business. So for the first time in my life, always loving the World Cup, I find myself wondering if I'll actually be able to watch that. And, you know, it's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. But uh, then, you're going to end up having a World Cup with what, 64 teams in it? Is that the plan? <laughs> you know, at some point down the road, they're talking about yeah, that now. That's insane. That's a, you know, that's not a World Cup. Yeah. You know, that, you know that's, that's just... <laughs> God Almighty! Yeah, that's a hideous concept. You know, the game's supposed to mean something. Yeah, and it's a bit like the Super League idea when when you um, drain competition from it. You know, yeah, to absolutely, a point, it loses its meaning. Absolutely unacceptable. Um, but what uh, we will definitely return to Italia ninety because uh, what I'd like to do is go back to the beginning of your story and then we'll we'll pick Italia ninety up as we go along and then carry on forward um so tell me about how you became a writer because I, I i'm not too clear on your kind of origin story um i just knew from when i was seven years old um 
when I was a kid at school, very young, I loved writing and it came naturally. And for many years as I was growing up, it mystified me, you know, surely everybody could do this. You know, when you're a child, you don't know, you know, and if you can do it, you figure that it's nothing special and everybody can. Um, I had, a, I, I used to, to have, well, I still do, but I had very vivid dreams and I would just write them down. And I got caught in the back of the maths class because I wasn't interested in maths or any good at it. And um, I would, got caught writing down the story of a dream that I'd had the night before. And it was taken off me. I didn't pay attention in class, etc. And then later the teacher read it and it got published in the school magazine. <laughs> and I just thought, oh. And I loved reading. I was, an early, I was a reader from a very early age. I grew up in a house full of um, a sort of fairly eclectic variety of books. Um, my mum was a big reader. Uh, I read Dickens from early on. I loved people that mucked about with language, but, but the house was also full of thrillers. You know, my dad was in the Navy. There was Alistair MacLean and Hammond Innes and... There was the World War II stuff, of course, because I was, you know, that's not so long ago when you're a kid in the 60s and you're reading about the Tirpitz and the Bismarck and other naval stuff that connected to my dad's uh, career. And I, I was captivated by thrillers. Absolutely. I, I, as I grew up and found myself writing books, it didn't matter what the subject was, the mode had to be thriller. You know, I felt that. I wasn't doing my job if the reader didn't want to turn the page, you know, what happens next. So it didn't matter what the story was about. You know, most of my books were nonfiction. What, whatever it was about, it had to be edge of the seat because, you know, otherwise what are you doing for people? You know, you, you ask money, <laughs> that really simple thing, you know, you, you're asking people to give you money for your books. Um, you know, you, you better deserve it. Yeah. Well, see, it's the, it's the and, um, essence of storytelling. I, I feel that way. I'm an actor and I feel that way when I watch, you know, films or plays or anything. If if I don't want to know what happens next, if I'm starting to fall asleep, you've done something wrong here. And, you know, for that influenced me a lot. I think unconsciously. I mean, these are things that I've sort of very slowly worked out over time and, and looking back. But um, because I did not think about it when I started out i just had no doubt i was going to write um and my life was very willful very self-driven um i knew what i wanted to do and i was going to go and do it and i wrote my first novel when i was 19 it was absolute rubbish um what was it published what what one was that? oh god no right god no not a chance <laughs> garbage but it proved to me that I could keep going for 200 pages. Hmm. What was I it about? Wrote, oh, I, can't, I can't be, it was about being 19. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking you know more than you do. Hmm. Um, you know, it's about girls and drink and drugs. Um, my second novel was written when I was 22. It was better, but still not good enough. But it proves to me that instead of just writing something random for 200 pages i could write something that had a story and, and it worked in, in the way that i wanted it to may, and then may, the I, may, 
were you in education during this like did you go to university or anything or were you just yeah yeah i i um the first one went, uh, i wrote when i was 19 i was at, i was at university then and it was written in the summer break between first and second years um and after that i gave up on university i only stayed there to get a degree by the skin of my teeth um because I didn't I had a thing about I didn't want to let my parents down but actually I was letting them down because I wasn't paying the slightest bit of attention to university I was um getting off my face all the time basically and claiming to be a writer and at that point I wasn't quite not yet um but then I left uni and went and worked in a nightclub for nine months which was brilliant uh you know alabaster white skin never saw daylight in the winter never saw darkness in the summer um enjoyed that and then um got a job in advertising writing advertising copy which was again although i wasn't conscious of it incredibly good training in being disciplined mm. you know a 20 second advert on the tv if, if you've got 30 words in it you've probably got too many mm. so they better be the right ones and it was just technical training i suppose again i wasn't conscious what happened to me but i was just a sponge i was soaking up whatever was put in front of me whatever was passed my way and um in 1984 um appropriately i quit that job and went to morocco and wrote the first draft of novel in two weeks flat. Wow. And came back. When I was writing it, I knew that it would be sold. I knew that it would be published. It was, you know, it was the third one I'd done, but it's the first one that I knew. You know, I was, so I was I was twenty-five. And uh I gave it to an agent who rang me that afternoon. I, you know, I threw her for lunch and she rang me in the afternoon and said, um, I want to represent you. And she doorstepped a publisher the next morning who gave me a contract and that was that, boom, off, away. And that uh, was Dollarville, was it? No, that was the last election. Oh, excuse me. It was a, right. a, 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 a violently angry satirical thriller about Thatcherism, which I loathed. Um, and then Dollarville was the second novel, right. which came out a few years later. This, correct me if, you know, if I'm out on my own with this idea. I'm sure I'm not. I'm sure this is a fairly widespread and received sort of quote-unquote wisdom thing, that it's a very common trajectory for artists bands, writers, to produce a first work, a first book, a first album that has the explosive energy of youth and may be naive or callow, but it doesn't matter because it's just so what the hell, confident, energetic, out it comes. And then that's the difficult second album. Mm. Um, Dollarville was unquestionably my difficult second album. And I was 
incredibly fortunate in, in terms of what I was doing. I was traveling all over the world, going to some really interesting, uh, often dangerous places and gathering material from that and trying to cobble it together. And I just couldn't, Dollarville's a really interesting book. One friend of mine told me it's in that rare case where a book needs to be about longer, not shorter, because there's so many ideas flying around in it that they haven't really been sort of properly developed. And it's very chaotic. It's very anarchic. It is. It has some great stuff in it, but I don't know. It's, the, it's definitely the difficult second album. But then the weird thing is that All Played Out came along and that's, you know, in this kind of archetypical trajectory, you know, the third one is the big one. And sure mm. enough, you know, my great novel, my third published book, wasn't a novel, it was a pub. it was about Italian Ninety. And I just landed I landed on it by uh, a sequence of happy accidents and it went the way that it did. Um, you know, I went into it having really well, obviously having no idea how it might turn out because England hadn't even qualified and they might not have qualified and then what would I, what would I have done? <laughs> um, and, and the fact that the story turned out to be so fantastic in terms of their, the drama of their progress to Turin and the semi-final, you know, and none of us could have foreseen that. So, you know, I, I lucked out. You know, one of the things I do have when I look back at my career is a very large amount of gratitude because I got to do some incredible things and and to, to be paid for it and all played out open doors for me to go off and do all sorts of stuff that was just really wonderful you know really wonderful and all the time that I was doing it um there was just this passionate belief in the one hand on the one hand you know that the the if, if it's if i don't feel that it's worth doing that i ain't doing it you know the story's got to have a reason behind it there's got to be a reason for doing this yeah it's got to be a, it's got to be about something that matters now ultimately it might turn out that it only mattered to me and no one else cared <laughs> but if i thought that the story was important and interesting and enlightening and of course entertaining and if you were really lucky funny along the way as well then you'd get all that but I, but I had to believe in it and I had to really want to do it and so the, the great majority of the subjects that I pursued were really done it was, it was stuff that was done for love so I might have made some really bad career decisions, but I can't look back and complain about it. Um, you also have to throw into the mix that very obvious idea that nonfiction is an awful lot easier than fiction for the simple reason that you don't have to make it up. Um, so, you know, I was, a, I was a young guy with married with two young children and I did have to make some money. Yeah, well, I'd be curious about that just to rewind a little bit. The I gathered the first two books before you made All Played Out, or you wrote All Played Out, uh, the first two books had set you up reasonably well. I've, I've seen interviews where you said you were spending a lot of time in America and things like that. So it sounds like your lifestyle had become pretty good at that point. Is that is that right? Yeah, I was very fortunate. Um, both the novels were published in New York. 
um, as well as in London. And, you know, people were writing nice reviews about them and talking about them. And that in turn was generating work for magazines. Um, I got some wonderful uh, commissions to go and write about this thing or that thing in different places all over the world. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's a paradox because yes, I was having a very good time. Um, but actually I didn't sell that many books until all played out came along. I sold right. enough, but you know, to, to be getting along with not, but in terms of an income no. And um, I, I love the story. You said that you just wanted to find a reason to get paid to go to the world cup. So mm -hmm. you, you suggested writing yeah, an, absolutely. an article. I was, I, was, I was talking to the Americans because I was in New York a lot with, you know, publishers and agents and other people that I came to know. And they knew that the World Cup was coming in 1994 and they had no idea what it was. You know, what, what is it? Why is it coming here? Why does everybody else care about it so much and we know nothing? What is, what is this thing? Um... So I thought, well, if I find a way to explain it to them, you know, that would be a fun thing to write. And so just there was that initial kernel of a notion that, 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 you, that I would write something maybe like, um, you know, a long, long form magazine journalism to, to cover the tournament in some way. Or, you know, this was in the late 80s, long, way out from the tournament. But then those conversations kind of crystallized with my agent and my publisher in London. And my publisher was immensely brave and gave me a contract to write a book about the tournament. And the initial notions of, of just popping over there for larks to write, um, you know, a couple of magazine pieces that went by the board. And, and I realized early on what an opportunity there was because there was no good football writing. Mm. There just simply was not. Um, publishing as an industry did not believe that there was any money in it. Um, football was a pariah as, as a sport, as an industry. People thought that everyone or anyone who was interested in football was, you know, an illiterate moron who got drunk and smashed up cafes and public squares in other people's cities. You know? So why would you write a book for these people? Because that's, you know, a pack of ghastly morons who, who can't read. Mm. And I thought, you know, hang on a minute, that's me you're talking about. You know, I'm a football fan. And, the, you know, the, the, it got to the point where the majority of English football fans were, were could be at risk because they were being all put into the same box. You're all hooligans. So you might have 2,000 people there and 20 hooligans. Now they're going to determine who the actually awful 20 people are when some other lot of people are just trying to have an adventure and a, and a holiday and, and watch a game. Who are these people? You know, No one knew who these people were. You know, everything was two-dimensional, blanket, utterly unsophisticated and ignorant. I, th I think the, sim the simple thing 
to say is that I went from the beginning, I went into it wanting to write a book about culture, not just about sport. Um, I wanted to write a book about who we are. What is the state of Englishness? What, what is the problem? <laughs> what the hell is wrong with us? Um, because football is such a representative game. I think I think one of the problems we were talking earlier about how the game has changed in in the past few decades, and I think a very important point to make is that in 1990 it was still possible for a team to turn up from somewhere, from Africa or Central America or wherever it might be, and you wouldn't know a thing about them, and and that could be really romantic and uplifting. Cameroon, obviously, at Italia 90, were completely fantastic, absolutely brilliant, and sometimes hilarious because their idea of what was an acceptable tackle, <laughs> bless them, it was like, oh, my God, you know, they're just completely taking people off at the knee here. Um, <laughs> they were fantastic, and that's not going to happen now because if Cameroon or whoever turns up at a World Cup now, you know who they are because they all play in Europe. Hmm. You know, so so there's a homogeneity about teams that in the past wasn't there at World Cups, and World Cups were still magical and surprising. You know, there's nothing more magical and surprising to me as a child, you know, I like 10, 11 years old, watching Brazil in 1970. You know, these are like people from another planet. They were so, hmm. so extraordinarily good at it. In, in what they were doing that was unthinkable, you know, and you didn't know who they were because they all came from Brazil. Yeah. Whereas that squad in 2021, every single one of them would be on a contract with somewhere, somebody in England or Italy or Spain or Germany. And it, it, that's not so romantic, is it? And just no. for an interesting fact, Brazil makes more money exporting footballers than it does exporting livestock seriously mm -hmm. so what does that tell us they've got no mean amount of livestock as well right i would have yeah. thought yeah yeah my god so you know that's what it's become over the last few decades so that so the romance has gone from it a little bit you know and i have to say you know, I, I really don't want to be cynical. I, I just want to look at things for what they are. But am I enjoying Euro 2020? Is it 2020, 2021? Yeah, it's confusing. Am I enjoying it? I'm loving it. Yeah, me too. You know, thank God it's there. Absolutely. You know, sometimes it makes me pretty anxious looking at full stadia, you know, and thinking, is, is that right? Is that wise? But yeah. there's something about the hodgepodge nature of the tournament scattered all over and about in these different cities and different countries, you know, and far flung that, that makes it different. And there's something about the fact that it's happening at all that, that shows up why we love football. Absolutely. And the, Itali and the Italians are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. You know, you so do. football, football itself remains this beautiful thing that can, that can, be powerfully uplifting and it's just everything that goes around it but if yeah. you come back to 1990 and why did i end up or why did i start out writing all played out the answer is really simple because it mattered 
and, and nobody had explained why it mattered. You know, football just really matters. It's no good saying it's only a game. Yes, yeah. it is only a game, but what a game. Absolutely. You know? It, it's actually a thought that occurs to me that as a civilization, it's an incredibly intelligent thing that we've done to create things like football and other big sports like that because they channel kind of emotions that could be put into war and the desire to conquer other countries and, and that kind of thing. They, they channel those kind of things into something that is just a beautiful game. You know, yes. you can you can feel a similar sense of triumph without people needing to die for it, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which, is, which is why it was so shocking that people were dying at football games in the 80s yeah. in England. Yeah. But um, I, I wanted to ask you about the actual players because you, you do talk a lot about the fans and, and the experience in Italy, the adventure of that, which is all absolutely fantastic. But it's also another side of the book is you being inside the camp talking to all these players. And I think it would be really interesting to get your perspective on some of them, especially now with, now that we're 31 years beyond that, to see what's become of them. So say, for example, like Gary Lineker is a big character in the book. And, you know, you say that he, he's thinking of going into TV. So I'm curious to hear about your, your impression of what Gary Lineker has, uh, has done since then. And, you know, that he's kind of fulfilled that, that promise that you, you, um, you know, outlined. Yeah, I'm, I'm, all, all that there is to say there, really, I think, is I'm not in the least bit surprised how successful he has been because he's an intelligent guy and he's very thoughtful about what he says and doesn't say. Um, he's got a natural intelligence that enables him to, to, to be appealing without giving so much of himself away. Mm. You know, he's quite cautious about himself personally and he's able to do that without in any way being obstructive or, 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 you know, blocking you out. Um, I, I wasn't, I'm not in the least bit surprised he's done so well. And the nice thing about it is that as his, uh, particular position has grown more secure and established, he has for a good long while now been prepared to speak out on it, on issues, which I, I think is tremendous. And I, like I said, it didn't surprise me. Um, when I was interviewed, well, I, I, didn't, I wouldn't use the word interview. A lot of the time I was just sitting around talking with people. But when I was in that place, in, inside the camp, at all the different places and occasions that, that I was, he was simultaneously the easiest one to talk to, but also probably the one who gave the least away. And, and that's, you know, credit to him because he knew what he was doing. Um, but as a group of people, you can't possibly get to know all 22 people. Uh, a couple of them wouldn't speak to me because they played for Brian Clough and Clough told them not to talk to journalists. And so that was just, they were so scared of Clough. I think they're just like, don't talk to anybody and then we're safe. Chris Waddle was incredibly good company. John Barnes was really likable guy. Gascoigne was a child. You know, and I say that meaning it kindly. Um, very very hard work sometimes you know exhausting 
the amount of energy that he had, you know, he'd be just bouncing off the walls, talking rubbish, um, wanting somebody to go and play ping pong with him, wanting somebody to go and play tennis with him, wanting somebody to go and play golf with him, wanting somebody to go and swim with him, wanting somebody to do something with him because he was just bouncing off the walls and then suddenly crash, he's gone, he's asleep. And uh, the, se- the same question I asked about, about Lineker uh, for Paul Gascoigne, you know, obviously he's had a much more kind of fraught life um and at times cuts quite a tragic figure uh but i i saw a recent interview with him and he seemed to be in reasonably good form and, and I, it really struck me he's got such a charisma like you know he's just a, a bit mad but kind of quite imaginative in the things that come out of, out of his mouth um, I, I i feel that he's a troubled soul and that it, it gives me a, it's it's a it's a story with a lot of sorrow in it and i and i feel it's heartbreaking, really. You know, he's such a wonderfully gifted player and could be such a, a spontaneously kind and thoughtful person about the people around him. And his career, it was predictable. You know, I do, again, it doesn't surprise me, you know, seeing the nature of him as a young man in Italy in 1990, you think what comes afterwards was almost written for him and it's and it's very sad but interestingly um i met him at the launch of a film about maybe eight nine years ago and he said the thing is they only write about me when i drink and he could go two years or however long, sober, leading a quiet life, being all right. And, you know, obviously nobody writes anything about him or pays him any attention and and actually everything's okay and it's going along quietly and smoothly and then for whatever reason, another slip, another fall off the wagon, another trip into chaos and darkness and they're all over him. And it makes it look like he's that way all the time. And he's not. Mm. We're talking about mental illness and addiction, and these are obviously really difficult areas. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if you saw Alex Ferguson has often said that the player he most regrets not getting was Paul Gascoigne. Yes. And I think part of that is he says the structure they would have had at United might have helped him avoid some pitfalls you know not only ferguson's kind of authoritarian streak but also they had players from similar part of the country uh, like brian robson and people like that who could have maybe helped look after him do you, do you put any it's one of those fascinating what ifs isn't it i knew that ferguson wanted to sign him and and deeply regretted that he wasn't able to and and would united have provided gascoigne with something more secure may very well be the case, but you can't tell how that timeline's going to play out, whatever club he's gone to, because eventually he's going to go to another one. And, and you know, the Lazio adventure was... Well, I mean, compared to Maradona in Naples, it's um, it's a carry-on film, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but bless him, I, you know, my heart goes out to him, really. It's yeah. tough stuff stuff but yeah there were moments when i looked in in 1990 and thought crikey what's gonna happen to this lad 
and and there was that very telling moment at the end when they were coming back to England after the semi-final and before they went out and there was these huge crowds to greet them and Lineker just took him aside ever so quietly and just said to him, be careful, be careful. But he, he didn't know how to be careful. And, and that's how it turned out. Hmm. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I think the most important thing is to say, you know, that I feel sadness about it. It's too easy to criticise. And, it, you know, it would be more valid for me to look at the state I was in in 1990 and ask, did I know what was coming for me? Instead of, you know, talking about somebody else. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, well, let's let's uh, get on to that um, because there's, there's lots more to talk about in terms of your time as a writer. And then I want to get to the time where you stepped away from it as well. So it strikes me, something that strikes me about the, the books that you then wrote after all played out, there's a certain kind of prescience. Um, and I, I will confess that I've only read all played out. So forgive me, this is based on just reading a little bit about the other books. But uh, I gather you wrote a book about the, the 1918 flu pandemic. Yep, 40 uh, million dead. And you wrote that, um, that in 99. So yeah. Uh, well, there was some fascinating work going on in uh, scientific fields, molecular pathology, virology, that were bringing us new levels of enlightenment about how 1918 happened and looking for the genetic material of the virus that had caused that disaster. And it was such a fascinating thing to study. I spent well over a year on it and, and really immersed myself in it and and particularly in virology you know how does this work and the key message to come out of that book for me and all the work that i did on it was very simple every single scientist that i spoke to every single person involved in public health management of threatening viruses in hong kong in holland in atlanta at the cdc in Toronto, in London, wherever I went and wherever I talked to scientists and public health people, every single one of them said, this will happen again. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And here we are. Mm. You know, we, we knew that another pandemic was coming. And we didn't and prepare. No, we we acted like we were prepared. Again, I don't want to speak of other countries because I don't know and I can't, I don't have the right to criticize them, but I, well, beyond egregious examples like Trump and Bolsonaro, but uh, as far as England's concerned, we were supposed to be really well prepared, but it turned out we were only well prepared on paper mm. and we weren't actually. It obviously doesn't help having a spectacularly awful prime minister in Boris Johnson. Mm. But, you know, any prime minister would have struggled with it, given that the supposed levels of preparation were not as solid as they should have been. Now, the vaccination programs are remarkable and a, a wonderful thing. Um, yeah. But I don't, think, I don't think this virus is done with us yet. 
So have you you wrote that book in 1999. Uh, yeah, have and, you... and it's worth saying there were three big waves in, in 1918, 1919. It, it, it went on playing out, that particular strain of influenza went on playing out into the early 20s. Um, yeah. So we need to be mindful of that. But yes, that was in 99. I wrote in the 90s, um, let me think, all Played Out came out in 1990, and I wrote another eight books after that. Um, the one directly after All Played Out was a, a trip around it was, America, right? It was a travel book, but it was about the Great Plains. It wasn't about the whole of the States. It was very much about the Great Plains, Oklahoma, Kansas, western Kansas, western Nebraska, remarkable, extraordinary places. Um with a, with a fascinating and sometimes very bleak history. Um, like I said, I got lucky. Now, I mean, you'd think, you know, if you've written a best-selling book about football, you'd, you'd hurry out and, and write another one. But I was absolutely uh, crystal clear in my mind that there was no such thing as all played out too, that it was not possible, it could not be done. And I wasn't going to even think about attempting to do it. And I was going to go and do something else. And like I say, I may have made some iffy career moves, but um, I had already been in that part of the States and I was utterly fascinated by it and wanted to go back and write a book about it. So I did. Um, and it totaled out, like I say, that I wrote another eight books in the 90s, which is some going, you know, and... Some of them were lightweight and fun, really enjoyable to do. Uh, the last three of them, particularly, including the flu book that we've spoken of, um, were bigger. You know, as I was getting older, I was doing more historical material and researching more, um, I guess, threatening things, things that concerned me. Um, so there were... The last three books were big pieces of, you know, I hope thoroughly researched nonfiction. Still going with that thriller idea, you know, one of the last three was, was about tropical cyclones. I mean, there's not much more thrilling than flying into the eye of a tropical cyclone. But equally, there's not much worse than going through one on the ground. So, you know, that stuff struck me as an important subject because, sure enough, we're going to have more of them. And 20 years ago, I said that too. Um, and they're going to kill a lot of people. Uh, but it, it burned me out in the end. And I didn't see it coming, but um, it absolutely burnt me out. Yeah, because I heard you say that, like, for example, with All Played Out, you got back from the World Cup and you wrote the book in, what was it, 58 58 days. days. All day, every day. You know, I look back at my writing and I understand. I don't know how other writers write. I don't really know any other writers. If people can sit at a desk in a writing room, wherever they may have that thing, and work diligently from nine in the morning to whatever time when they stop and do the same thing every day and produce 2,000 words a day, my hat goes off to them. Good luck to them. Bless them. I can't write like that. Um my writing was spontaneous, um, very fast, 
um, very full on, uh, and essentially, although over the years it, I was able to get a lot of books out, I was doing it in a manner that was increasingly, I didn't understand it at the time, but increasingly unhealthy and essentially addictive. Um, you know, every single book, the research might take 12 or 18 months, but the, the material itself and the book itself would be written really fast. And, you know, all played out. It's a huge book, 160,000 words, something like mm. 58 days to, to turn that out. That's insane. But all the others were the same. You know, I'd come back from, you know, the hurricane book. I lived on Miami Beach for the peak three months of the season, having done a lot of other research previously. And I spent three months working with the amazing and very decent uh tropical meteorologists at the National Hurricane Center and flying with them into storms. And, you know, at the end of three months, landing back at home and then whoosh, here's the book. You know, they'd come out, every one of them in like 30, 40 days. And then I'd lie down, then I'd lie down, you know, battered, absolutely battered. I was just smashed, but, you know, it take me, weeks to recover from writing things and you know writing's not supposed to be like that is it so i didn't notice how much damage i was doing to myself because i was having such a great time so it was it, it was an enjoyment like it was a, a kind of compulsive enjoyment uh, as opposed to like you couldn't have structured it in a way that it's five o'clock i'll stop now no i know i could never stop at five o'clock if i was writing i was writing and i wrote until i went to bed and then i dreamed about it while i was asleep and then i got up and i started again yeah. yeah. And I and I did that seven days a week. And and I loved it. So tell and me about the moment where you realized you kind of burned out. I just and... crashed. I you know, I was getting you know, happens to us all, I was getting older. So presumably I was running out of my to at least to a certain extent of my resources or energy. Um but I was out of the country three, four plus months a year and I had two young kids and I was missing chunks of their growing up. I was, I mean, this is an awful complacent blase thing to say, but I was getting tired of airports. Um, I was getting tired of, of leaving home and coming home and leaving home and coming home. And I felt like a hamster on a wheel, you know, that you would be finishing one book and thinking what the next one might be about. And I just hit a point where the last book that I wrote at that time um, I'd been a guy in London had said to me, "You can write about anything you like so long as it's about America." <laughs> because the deal was, you know that you will you will function commercially if you're being published in New York and London. And that the last book, the 11th one that I wrote, um, was published in New York. And the guy in London said, it's too American. <laughs> 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 oh, boy, that brought me up short. What? <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was just looking at it thinking, I'm tired. 
and and I found myself I had a couple of other ideas for books but the market was collapsing uh, after 9-11 and the dot-com bubble bursting and the money wasn't there to do the kind of books that I was writing all of a sudden hmm. and, and I, I, like I said I was tired and I, I was looking I, I found myself in a place where I, I couldn't write a sentence, never mind a book. And my confidence just collapsed, everything collapsed. Um, I, I, you know, I became very ill for a while. Um, it was, I mean, I can look back on it and say, I'm a very lucky bloke because I'm still here. And what happened had to happen because I had some lessons to learn. And I'm very stubborn, so I didn't take kindly to learning them at first, but I am I can look back on it and say I'm grateful. Uh, I mean, God knows I had a marvellous time. But the stuff that I've learned in the years since then has done me a lot of good and and I do have that significant ultimate plus point of the fact that I'm still here simple as that and at one point I was getting told I was going to die so um, but also depression I had no idea I was very took me coming to terms with depression and, and, and working that out and how, how I'd manage that down the years, how actually, actually, you know, the addictive behavior and, and the, the depression had kind of always been there. And I'd had, you know, coping strategies that were spontaneous, but not always healthy. And it took me a long time to come to terms with, with all of this stuff. And it was very, very hard to not be a writer at first for you well for some years it was very very hard indeed because that was my whole identity you know I'd, I'd known that I was going to be a writer since I was seven I'd loved writing since I was seven and here I was um, in my early 40s unable to do it and completely blindsided by that completely at a loss Utterly no idea what to do. Um, and I went into a, a very dark downward spiral around that for a while. Um, it was, it was difficult. Um, I'm, you know, I'm glad now, you know, it's, it's been, interesting stuff it's like having a whole other life um things that i never expected to find myself doing that turned out to be incredibly good for me i went i was in sainsbury's shopping september i think it was oh two and you know everything was a complete mess and i just thought you know what i like shopping i like cooking 
partner if they've got a job. I ended up working there for 14 years and it was incredibly good for me. Incredibly good for me. So you were working yeah. like in the store? Yeah. Uh, you know, I just started out same as everybody else, you know, like fill a shelf. Yeah. And, you know, over time, learn a lot of different uh, and very enjoyable skills, like, you know, the bakery and the meat and fish. And I didn't ever think I'd find myself filleting flatfish, but back in those days, you didn't. It was fun. Um, and then, you know, like learning whole rafts of stuff about how the business worked and starting to run things, run little pieces of things. And, you know, the most important thing was getting on with people because I always thought I'd been really good with people. But actually, all people had ever been to me was material. And I might get on with them well and enjoy it and be glad of it. But once the book was written, didn't need them anymore, did I? So it was very selfish. Writings are very selfish. Or well, my writing was actually very selfish stuff. Um, you know, it had good outcomes in terms of producing decent books that I hope are, you know, not just worth reading, but but kind to the people involved in them. You know, I, I enjoy. I liked my 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 subject matter I liked my stories I, I liked the people that I was writing about for, for, for the great part um, so I hope that everywhere that there were good people that they are duly acknowledged as such and that they come over as such but in fact I was really selfish they were just material to me whereas later on 14 years working in the real world uh, you started coming up against all the regular problems of everyday life that people have and you, and you start finding that maybe you might possibly be able, be able to help somebody. And that was very valuable. Um, you know, you could listen to people hmm. and, and maybe offer support, maybe offer help, maybe help them get through the working day all right maybe be someone that people were glad to work with and I met, I met a lot of good people and it was it was a very good thing for me um so it was it was really weird that I ended up writing another book <laughs> yeah because you did write a playlist I did that... <laughs> it's like Went through all that and then ended, ended up sat down at a desk with a pad of A4 again. How did that happen? Well, how think, did how did it happen? Um, I I did. I'd been working for Sainsbury's for fourteen years. I'd not written a word for longer than that. Um, I'd very much come to terms with it. Um, my life had improved very much in a lot of happy ways. Um. And then I just had this idea. It was one idea. 
what if you walk out of your house in the morning to go to work and everybody's gone? And I had some time off work and I went to Scarborough and I sat in a bed set in b and for a couple of weeks and I wrote 8,000 words. So I wasn't going as fast as I used to. That's probably a healthy sign. Um, and I looked at it and thought, that works. That's, that's really good. I took it home and I played with it on and off. And then later I went back to Scarborough and thought I'd have another go with it. And I could not. You know, that, those 8,000 words worked really well as a chapter and I could not get chapter two written. Could not. I'd sit there going like, I've got this great material. Why won't it go anywhere? And then this blinding flash of light, this, this chapter that you've written, it's not chapter one, it's the last chapter. Hmm. You know, the book that you have to write is how do you arrive at this point? It's not what happens from here. It's how do you arrive at this point? What's gone on that this guy opens the door and there's nobody there. What's happened? And it just came from nowhere. And the, the kind of themes of the book, I think I wish I could live in a world where one never heard the bloody word again, but Brexit just so utterly enraged me. Not just enraged, appalled. I think I was so angry and fearful about what was happening to my country and the direction that we were and still are headed in that I guess I, I wanted to write again in order to get it off my chest, in order to speak again about it, about the state of things. You know, as a young man, 25 years old, on a hotel rooftop in Morocco, I wrote a book protesting about Thatcherism and it was a thriller and I suppose 40 years later give or take um, yeah best part of 40 years later I ended up writing another novel about the state of my country same old and unfortunately it's not better it's worse I might be in better shape thank god so i was able to sort of speak again and, I, and you know we've talked a lot about all play now I, you know and i get it of course i've written 12 books now and most of them are out of print you know a lot of them are you know it's a long while ago and that's fine that's fair enough it's normal but people all always want to talk about all played out and of course i understand that because it's about football and it's about a great tournament in, in the history of the game. And it's a very big dramatic story. And it was also a cultural turning point. Of course, people, and you know, I'm really grateful that people love that book. All I can say is in, in the most unresentful way possible, it would be nice if people would read the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say having read, because just so people are clear, um, the reason I've only read all played out, and none of the others yet is because the whole coming together of us having this conversation happened incredibly quickly to give you a very brief background um i actually didn't know about all played out 
until I read an article by Barney Ronnie in The Guardian just before the Euro started. And he quoted, he quoted uh, All Played Out in it and said, you know, this is from Pete Davis's book, the greatest book written about football and Englishness and so on. And that got me curious about it. So I looked it up and I discovered that your story fit the the structure of this podcast, given mm. that you'd had the big career change. And I thought, well, given that you've written this book, the greatest book about football, and we're in the middle of the Euros, how brilliant would it be for us to have a chat now? And and, um, and it's enormously enjoyable. <laughs> but that's yeah. very fast. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, and uh, but But I must say, now having read all played out and having had the chance to talk to you i'm absolutely um you know i can't wait to read other i i'm i'm trying to think of which i'd want to pick up next but uh, a lot of them seem completely fascinating and actually what you just said about playlist is the more recent one right yes that's right yes i i i i would love for people to read playlist and i have to say you know i get that not everybody's going to like it i think um it was very, very interesting to find myself writing it again, but also some of the stuff that started landing in it. Publishers were very kind about it. Um, one publisher in particular was interested in publishing it and just said, you know, from an editorial point of view, she wanted to take God and the devil out. And minor changes. I just felt like saying that you know they're the main characters. <laughs> <laughs> You're not quite right, but no, sorry. I'll 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 hell with it. It's 2021. I'll put it out myself. <laughs> or at that time, it was 2017. I'll put it out myself. It's like uh, we want to publish all played out, but can you take the football out? Yeah, really. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, this is something I've talked to other guests about, uh, for example, in the realm of music and so on, that the technology of today has, to a certain extent, democratized the production of art. So that there is no... Re Obviously, it's harder without marketing budgets and stuff behind you, but you can self-publish stuff. And you can. It's, much, it's harder to make a living, Yeah, but more people can do it. Um there are pluses and minuses all ways around, but it, it meant that it was possible for me to be true to what I wanted to do. And and again, you always have to look at it and say, well, maybe I've just got something off my chest, chest here that I yeah. needed to say. And I, I hope it's an exciting story. And I hope there are some laughs along the way. You know, when the main character freaks out and decides that Elton John's blown up his kitchen. Um, has right. Elton John blown up his kitchen, or would would I give it away? <laughs> okay, uh, no, spo no spoilers here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just to be clear, uh, so did you leave? Did you leave your job at Sainsbury's, or yes, I did? Yes, did, I left right. it to, to write again, and there were other changes in my circumstances that you know I, I'd, I'd done my time there, and I'm really grateful for it because it. I mean, it's it's not like a natural headline that you're going to see in the paper, but Sainsbury saved my life. Um, yeah, I was in a I was in a bad place, and it was, and it turned out to be a really good thing for me to go and do. It 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 it, it stabilised things for me, and I'm really glad of it. And I met some good people, and I learned yeah. a lot. 
Well, well, that's one of the major themes of this podcast. Um, part of the reason I started it is that me being an actor, there's this idea that if people stop being actors, there's a kind of a taboo around that because it's like you're leaving you're leaving a dream job to go and probably you know if you go into the kind of real world to do something maybe mundane or whatever and people would see that as being a failure and i felt that 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 taboo was was wrong and kind of off the mark and that i wanted yes. to have conversations with people about this yes because, i couldn't I couldn't agree with you more yeah there, there's so many things about being an artist whatever kind of artist it is um or other professions but p- p- particularly in the arts that uh i, I don't know do there's a lot of sacrifices that need to be made or there's it's a, it's a strange way to live and it mightn't necessarily somebody could love it like you talk about loving writing but you could love it for a certain period of your life but then you reach a new period and go actually i don't need that anymore or you yeah know. yes I, I i didn't know that i didn't need it anymore but in the end i was very glad that i found that i that i was away from it you know as i, as I came to understand how unhealthy it had become you know, I, I I was passionately committed to it. I gave everything to it. And in the end, glad that I did what I did. Glad that I stopped when I did. Yeah. Because it might seem absurd, but it was destroying me. Um, I feel a lot better these days and calmer a lot you know i actually know peace of mind from time to time which is quite pleasant um i still get um exceedingly annoyed about some things but i also know that i can't change them so um, i'm not god who is a character in a book (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and land a little bit more than that besides i think probably um but but you know i don't have the power to run around forcing the world bending the world to my will and i think possibly the difference between what i was trying to do unbeknownst to myself when i was writing at that massive pace all through the 15 plus years late 80s all through the 90s every book in a way was trying to bend the world to my will Whereas playlist 15 plus years later is about taking the world for how it is Hmm. Uh, not forcing me upon it. Maybe Hmm. Um, I I would like to say, Donald, this, it it happens, you know, it's coincidental, but very sweet that, that we've had, we've found ourselves having this conversation just at this point, because in recent weeks and months, and obviously the pandemic having a massive impact and influence on this, but I found myself thinking a lot about what writing means to me now. Um, and wondering about possibly writing another book, which the germinal ideas of which at the moment are quite strange, but possibly quite interesting. I may never write another one, and if that's the case, so be it. You know, I've had a very good life. And again, that word grateful keeps coming back in, so it should. But if I did write another one, it would be 
trying to get some clarity about how I arrived um, at this point where I look at all the noise that went with writing in my head and my head doesn't have that sort of noise going on in it in the same way these days. Maybe. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I don't feel that I'm very good at talking about this. I don't feel no. that I have a lot of confidence in terms of trying to grasp and express what it is that's forming up in my head because I've maybe not got anywhere near to it yet. But I'm, it, it's conceivable that I may write another book. It's also conceivable that I won't because it's my 13th and therefore obviously unlucky and shouldn't be written. <laughs> and I'm not superstitious at all. Um, you you mate you sounded like a footballer there for a second. Yeah, or yeah. Your socks <laughs> in a way. Must, um, must put left boot on first. Yeah. Um, but what you're making me think of is I've been thinking recently about the whole concept of uh, having a healthy relationship with the things that you enjoy or love or you know feel a, a compulsion to um, get involved in or consume or whatever you know that the whole idea of having a healthy relationship with them is is massively on my mind. And it sounds mm -hmm. like now that you've come back to writing with playlists that you've had a much healthier relationship with writing. I think so. I hope so. It's still difficult, but it's not um, destructive to the extent that it was. Uh um, isn't there? The only thing I would say that does trouble me is I sometimes get very impatient and pissed off with the idea that I'm going to die when I still won't have worked everything out. Um, now, obviously, if I go to heaven, then everything will be worked out, and that's fine. Um, if I go to the other place, I'll have bigger problems, and therefore it won't matter. Um, are you actually religious? I can't quite tell from... No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to church. Right. Uh, um, w one thing about your story, w w you know, both from reading All Played Out and then seeing the other books that you wrote, a thing that I hugely crave that I haven't had anywhere near enough of yet, I feel, in my life is adventure. And it sounds like you had a huge amount of adventure. Um, the most, um, among a long list of dramatic and enjoyable things that I've done, the most dramatic without a doubt, is flying into the eye of a hurricane. Um, I can't describe, well, I, that's a ridiculous thing to say. I've described very exactly what it's like in, in the book about it. Um, but it is an amazing experience to be flying through the deepening bands of a storm towards the center of it with everything you're seeing on the radar screen in front of your seat getting worse the pilot in your ear talking about shifting the plane this way or that to avoid that rain band, to avoid that chunk of convection over there to get you through. And as you're going along the plane, it's shaking and shaking and rattling and rolling more and more and more. And then suddenly you come out and you're in the eye of the storm and it's God's stadium. It's this enormous bowl of, clouds circled around you 60,000 foot tall just 
breathtaking and a wall of cloud in a huge circle all around you and absolute stillness compared to the shaking, you know, the tooth shaking rattle and roll that you've just been through to get there. And then suddenly there you are in, in that clear air and it's beautiful. And you can look down 8,000 feet and the waves are so huge that you can see them. In the, in the vein of adventure, because obviously adventure entails locations and, and nature, but obviously it also entails characters. Who would you say, do, when I say to you the, you know, the most uh, outstanding character from all the adventures you had, who pops into your mind? Ooh. Do you know what? I'm not going to mark this one down to an individual. You know, I met some fabulous people, the scientists that were working on uh, the pandemic virus, uh, the scientists that were doing the hurricane research. I met some terrific people. Bobby Robson and the England squad, you know, really decent bunch of people to be around for that time. So, you know, very lucky in all those regards. But if I had to pick one candidate there, I wouldn't pick an individual. I would pick the Doncaster Bells. I spent a year with that women's football team at a time when women's football was essentially ignored and totally disregarded. And they were fantastic. They were very good at it. They made their own way in an environment that was hostile to them. And they were successful and they were lovely. It was like having 15 sisters for a year. It was just brilliant. They were lovely, lovely people. And um, I'm glad I spent that time with them. When I referred to your uh, prescience earlier and I mentioned the pandemic, that was the other one I was thinking of uh, about women's football. Because obviously now it's becoming much more, it's getting much more attention um, and I think much more kind of respect generally as it as it should have had and you know even in in the euros now it's become just completely normal for there to be women pundits and women commentators and so on yeah and about time too yeah about time too but again you you were so far ahead of the curve in that regard you were writing a book about women's football in the mid 90s yes <laughs> i know you've got a slight nostradamus quality it seems oh <laughs> <laughs> uh. I'm thinking about a guy I know who um, about 18 months ago, mid-January last year, just mildly tweeted, that virus in Wuhan, it's just background noise on the radio at the moment, like at the start of any good disaster movie. Mm. Yeah. And talk about, talk about, haunting you know haunting you to look back at that thought but you must have been attuned to that given that you'd written the book i i, I would assume oh yeah you, yeah yeah you, you think must okay, have here, here it. it is here it is i mean when i finished writing the book about 1918 i was scared to death absolutely mm. bloody terrified you know because you, you looked at it and thought this will happen again this there's, there's no doubt about it but, you know, we get on with our daily lives and, and you know, you start working on another book and, and, and these thoughts get put to one side and you sort of settle down and live with it. 
Um, but, but, yeah, I mean, I thought when I finished the book, this is really scary as hell, this is going to happen again. And then, you know, at the beginning of last year, I thought, you know, you, you start seeing what's happening and you think, oh, my God. You know, and certainly, though, again, the, the, the kind of wider stuff we've been talking about, about, about um, arriving at some sort of peace of mind, um, I think a lot of what the pandemic has triggered, and I'm sure I'm way not alone on this, but thoughts about mortality for sure. You know, you look at it and think, well, actually, how have I done? Did I do all right? You know, I, 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 look, I can look back and I've loved my life. If you look at the things that have gone on in it and, you know, the chances I've had. And, but, you, you know, mortality. Early on in the pandemic, I, you, you're living with this thing where we, you know, we locked down and knuckled down like everybody. And once a week I'd go shopping and you think, you know, every time you go shopping, just once a week, you know, we'd work out a menu and I would go and do the shopping because we live in a little village. Once a week, it's the menu for the week. I'll go and get the shopping. Every time you go, you know that you're going and three weeks later, you could be dead. Hmm. Yeah, I'm 62. And then and you sort of, it's amazing how we can come to terms with things. It's amazing how we can settle down and adapt to living. Um, although sadly, you know, some people apparently can't. As in the, the people who the fatalities of it or or no no i mean the anti-vaxxers and oh i see what you mean yeah the anti yeah. god you know my heart goes out to everybody that's losing people not least because certainly in england the scale of the death toll need not ever have been as high as it is mm. you just you really hope we learn you know we didn't learn from the 1918 pandemic but you hope we learn from this one because you know there's yeah, people saying I, that this yes, is the... I, I hope that we will but we won't mm. <laughs> there you go Mr. Cheerful <laughs> <laughs> you know I mean, how many decades have we got left when you look at the climate yeah well you said that I've actually uh, I've got um... it's at the end of all played out isn't it yeah I've, I've got it here and you say at the end of all played out you 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 say what is it uh the miracle of flight eating up the ozone burning up the atmosphere and what will things be like 30 years from now when joe is my age will we still jet about so casually will we still play world cups hmm. for a little while longer but maybe not <laughs> yeah after that maybe not after that i suspect football would be one of the last things to go Yes. Cling on to it. Oh yeah. <laughs> Honestly, when there's nothing left but rubble and irradiated ash, we'll still be playing football. <laughs> you know, there'll still be an England fan in a fan lurking in a cave somewhere cursing Maradona. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's such a, a pleasure to talk to you, Pete, and I, Thank I, feel, you, like, I feel like I could do it all evening. Um, yeah, it's been very but, enjoyable. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for sharing your story, and you've really given me um, lots to think about, and I'm sure the listeners lots to think about. It's a uh, really, uh, you know, fascinating and enjoyable, and and uh, yeah, thought provoking story. So, so thank you, and uh, thank you. and thank best you of luck, best of luck uh, to your team on Tuesday. Um, <laughs> yes, I'll be I'll be no. thinking of you. Whatever whatever happens, it's possible. It's always possible. Absolutely. <laughs> that was my interview with Pete. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have an unusual life story or know someone who does, please get in touch with me by email at patspodcastpeople at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast and think it's a worthwhile venture, you can support it on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash patspodcast. It will help me invest more time in the podcast and continue finding interesting stories. Alternatively, you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts or simply share it with family and friends. Any of the above will be greatly appreciated. You can find me on Twitter. It's at Pat's Podcast. I said I was going to take a break at the end of the last episode, but I reneged on that when the opportunity to speak to Pete arose. So I'm going to take that break this time and enjoy watching the rest of the Euros plus Wimbledon. And I'll be back in a month's time. See you then. Thank mm-hmm. you.